Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. All right, Malika Chopra is coming up, and we'll get your voicemails in a second. First, an item of business, and for this item of business, I want to bring in a special guest. Her name is Lauren Efron. Lauren, can you please come in to the studio? Come in here, please. She's walking from the next room over. Lauren Efron is a name you will have heard if you've listened to this podcast for a while because she's the producer. Lauren, can you sit here, please? She didn't know I was going to do this. She's mad at me. Lauren, this is your last podcast. This is why we do, this is why producers stay in there in the other room and not in this room. Okay, I'll do most of the talking. I'm shaking. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. This whole podcast started because I randomly ran into you in an elevator and I said to you two years ago, do we do any podcasts? And you said, I don't know, but I'll find out. And two days later, you had all these executives and people who could do things in my office. And we had a podcast that you have produced beautifully for two years. But you're now being called to do something else. But this would never have happened without you. Oh, well, I'm I, I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm beyond honored, Dan. It's been uh, – thank you. It's been amazing working for you. I mean, you make it so easy. Um, and uh, I'm truly – honored that we were able to do this for you yeah well we did it with each other yeah absolutely it was an amazing team and i'm really gonna miss you you've been (laughs) phenomenal phenomenal and i just people because people who listen to the show are pretty loyal about it they get really into it and i just want everybody to know your name and hear your voice because this would never have happened without you i just cannot say that strongly enough well best (laughs) thank you thank you um and uh, i told you i'm shaking this is I was not prepared for this at all. I would have like thought, you know, I would have meditated on it. I would have thought this through. I would have planned things. I would have said that I was totally ambushed. Um, but no, I mean, it, it truly it's and it's amazing what what you've been able to to lead the charge here for us. Right, I mean, this is all we. This is all we. No, you. <laughs> it's all we. We did it together. It's yeah, been amazing. Absolutely. And Josh Cohan has been a huge part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so. So thank you. I just want to th- say thank you. And also, it's your birthday. Um, <laughs> so you, you got a little treat coming from me and my wife oh in the my mail God. for you. So. You guys are too much. Uh, but thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's been, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, but it's been an amazing, you keep saying we, and it's true. It's been an amazing partnership. And I feel incredibly blessed to have worked with you on this and to be on this journey with you. It's just um, to be a part of something here not just in your orbit, but also here at the network too. I mean, it's just, um, it's incredible what, um, and now I'm saying, um, every third word because now I can't. So do I, by the way. So do I. That's what happens when you don't have oh, a plan. Oh God. See, I mean, this is, uh, and I'm blush. I feel my, my face is on fire. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, and what I'm not articulating well is that it has been an honor and a pleasure to work with you on this and to make this thing happen and to work with Josh on this. Um, and now I see that Josh is in the room and is probably, and just shaking his head at me because he's just like, you're well done. You're really, yeah, you're really just, yeah, uh uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) Wrap it up. Um, but yeah, and I, I just feel uh, truly blessed for this opportunity too. And I'm, I'm fully mean that with all of my heart. This has been a wonderful experience. I am, I'm not leaving ABC. I uh, just got a new position that will move me off the show, but, uh, I'm still going to be sticking around. And so I hope that this is the start of many other projects that we get to work on together. So, um, and, and thank you. Thank you very much. Me too. Thank you. And, and not only did you build this thing, but you in, and in your departure recruited an amazing, 
uh, successor in Ryan Kessler, who's operating the boards right now and is going to take over and and continue to build on what you have constructed. So, again, huge thank you. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Counterintuitive guest this week, given the fact that I made fun of Deepak Chopra quite vigorously in uh, my first book, 10% Happier. Why then would I have his daughter on on this show? Well, first of all, even though I made fun of Deepak, I, I actually like the guy. Second of all, his daughter's really interesting and really cool and really smart, and she's just written a book about kids and meditation. And unlike some of our previous guests, she doesn't come at it from the angle of – the book doesn't come at it from the angle of teaching parents how to teach their kids how to meditate. This is a book for middle schoolers to read, and uh, and so they t- they can meditate on their own, no assembly required on the part of the parents. Uh, so we, we talk about that, and, and we talk about whether uh, her dad will forgive me for um, making fun of him in my book. So we'll get to that in just a, in just a second. Um, let's do your voicemails first, though. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. This is Ron from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a longtime podcast listener. Love your work and effort to bring mindfulness to everybody that's interested in learning it, really. Uh, one question that I have, uh, I've read both of your books and lots of other things as well, but I would like to hear some of the performance improvements uh, that you see meditation providing to people who practice. So uh, looking at handling things in day-to-day life is great, but when you look at law enforcement officers or military personnel or things like that, generally they're looking for performance improvements in their life and uh, ways to to get them on that. Uh, so anything that you could help uh, talk to about that would be great. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that and how people who are interested in performance enhancing and how meditation and mind training might help that. Um, yeah, really, and that's about it. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Thank you. There are two big benefits that I hear people like Marines and cops and corporate executives talk about when they talk about performance enhancement. One is uh, focus. The we have, we have these eminently distractible minds, and staying on task is a hard thing to do. And meditation, this daily exercise of trying to focus on one thing at a time, then getting lost and starting again, getting lost, starting again, is is can be maddening. But it is it is it has been shown, and this is where the science is reasonably strong to rewire the parts of the brain that have to do with attention regulation. So that's one of the big things you hear from people about ways in which. Uh, these are high-performing individuals, uh, they report that uh, it boosts their focus. The second is mindfulness in the sense that, uh, let's, let, let's say, in the, in the sort of emotional reactivity sense, that people feel less owned by their emotions, so they're making better decisions in, as, it, as it pertains to the U.S. military. What you hear uh, is that people are making better decisions in the field, uh, i.e. Um, not shooting when they don't need to shoot, which uh, which actually has a strategic value because when you're fighting a counterinsurgency, the, the classic insurgent tactic is to get the occupying force to uh, engage in violence that turns the populace against them. And so having the ability to 
respond wisely instead of reacting blindly to provocations can have a real strategic value. So th- those are the two things you hear talked about from a performance enhancement uh, perspective. But I just would add one thing, which is that you know I'm all for performance enhancement. I'm I am in a high stress field. I'm in a couple of high stress fields, and I have seen the aforementioned benefits show up in my own life. But let's not overlook something that's often overlooked, I think, to the detriment of meditators or prospective meditators when we talk about meditation only from a performance enhancement perspective, which is that meditation also makes you less of a jerk to yourself and others. And that, too, is a performance (laughs) enhancer because the science shows that people who are more compassionate are less – are healthier, are happier, are more popular – and more successful. And uh, I think meditation, by giving you self-awareness, which allows you not to be so yanked around by your emotions, can boost your ability to be kind to yourself and others. Now, I say this as somebody who's deeply imperfect, and I recently had what's called a 360 review, where um, you uh, the reviewer, uh, you hire a company, like a, a corporate coaching company, and they talk to all, uh, all people from all angles in your life, your people who work for you, work next to you, people you work for. And um, yeah, so I've been calling this a kindness colonoscopy. And um, my 360 review was a very humbling experience. So uh, meditation does not make you a saint, as I have learned the hard way. But um, I do think it helps. And I found that having just received a bunch of tough feedback, you know, the mindfulness helps me incorporate it wisely, I think, more wisely than I otherwise would have without lapsing too much into defensiveness. So you'll hear a lot more about the 360 because I'm going to write a book about it because it was, whew. Let's go on to this next call here. Hi, Dan. Uh, My name's Melissa, and I am a road warrior here in Southern California. So I want to thank you, first of all, for your podcast and your book, but your podcast, Keep Me Company, on my daily drives. And I was thinking about it the other day. I have three kids that are, three girls that are under the age of eight. And my oldest, I notice, every once in a while will imitate me meditating, which she's seen me do for a couple of years now. Uh, And I think it's a good time because she's showing interest for me to be able to introduce the concept to her. I know you've had guests and and even referenced in your book as well, um, benefits for children learning how to meditate, and I want to see if you would have any suggestions or guidance on resources or ways for parents to be able to impart some of these learnings to their kids and start that practice early. I'd love to know your thoughts. Thanks so much. Well, drive safely, because driving is, I I don't envy you having to drive a lot. I don't love driving. Um, But thank you for listening to the podcast. I appreciate that. And once again, my brilliant producers have picked a question that tees us up perfectly for uh, this week's guest. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Malika Chopra talks about meditation. She talks directly to children, although she's talking to children three or four, two, three, four years older than your kid. So I think that that's one route, but probably not best for your kid for For your child, I would say you should go back and listen to the podcast we did with uh, Susan Kaiser-Greenland and Annika Harris, uh, which was – I don't know what podcast number it was, but it was a while ago. And they co-authored a book called Mindful Games, and that is really written for parents to teach meditation to their children. 
But let me just say one thing about I don't need to give a long answer to this before we get into Malika, but longtime listeners will have heard me say this before, but hopefully it's worth saying this again. I, I think it's great to try to introduce meditation to your children, but I would say don't try too hard because uh, it's going to be easy for them to reject it if it's coming from you. And that really in the long term, the thing that's going to make this stick, my suspicion is, and my experience having had parents of my own, not uh, they didn't teach me meditation, but they taught me lots of other things, will be to practice what you preach. In other words, for you to be mindful uh, as a parent, I think that's likely to have a longer shelf life for your child mentally and psychologically than for you to wag your finger and tell them that they should be mindful. I suspect you're already doing that if you're a longtime listener. Um, so you're probably on the right track. Uh, and so in the end, I hope I hope this just is a long way of saying, you know, you should not put too much pressure on yourself or your kids to take this up. But if you do want to... The book I would recommend is uh, Mindful Games by Susan Kaiser Greenland with Annika Harris. No relation, but we're friends. Uh, okay, great. Let's get to Malika Chopra, uh, who is uh, delightful. She's written a bunch of books, uh, including Living with Intent. That was back in 2015. That, there's quite an interesting story behind that book, which she will tell in this podcast. But the most recent one is called Just Breathe, uh, and it's uh, meditation and mindfulness uh, uh, for young young folks uh, in particular, middle schoolers. She has a very interesting background. She's a businesswoman. She's written several books. Uh, she went to the Kellogg School of Management, and um, you will recognize her last name, as I mentioned at the top of the show. She is the child of Deepak Chopra, and she has some very interesting things to say about uh, being raised uh, by one of America's most, and one of the world's most uh, well-recognized gurus. So here we go, Malika Chopra. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good seeing you. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate Thank you it. for having me. How did you get interested in meditation? I learned how to meditate when I was nine. Nine. So my dad had... I'm surprised he held it from you for that long. Yeah. <laughs> no, we were part of my dad's journey. So my dad um, was a pretty stressed out, miserable doctor. And um, people may be surprised to know that before meditation, he smoked incessantly, drank a lot, worked 24-7, and... When he discovered meditation, he walked into a meditation center and he had this life-transforming first meditation where for the first time he felt a sense of peace and quiet and um, quit drinking and smoking immediately, came home, took my mom to learn how to meditate, and the next day my brother and I learned, so we were nine and six. And what kind of meditation was this? So it was TM, Transcendental Meditation, so he learned in Cambridge. And, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he was a doctor at which hospital? So Stone? he was um, at Brigham, Brigham Young. Williams, yeah. yeah. Um, but Where my he, father worked until recently. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so my parents came here when they were 21 and 22 years old. He came for his residency. So from, they began in New Jersey from India. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is our family in India was not at all a spiritual family. My grandfather, my dad's father, was actually the first Western-trained doctor in India. Um, he was sent to London. And so our family was a very kind of Western-focused science medical family. My uncle also ultimately became one of the deans at Harvard Medical School. And so um, my father really didn't have that kind of spiritual background, but he had more of a philosophical background. 
And so when he he was interested in Krishnamurti at that time, and then when he learned meditation, it was an experiential kind of transformation. Can you just quickly say who Krishnamurti was? Krishnamurti is one of the great Indian philosophers, um, you know, of the 20th century, basically. Uh, and so um, writes a lot about Vedic philosophy and Eastern philosophy. So that was someone that my dad was fascinated by and had read a lot of his work and had heard him speak also. But it was very intellectual. So I think his first meditation was very experientially transformational um, and, uh, you know, just took him on this new path. So what was it like for you at age nine? What was that first? Do you remember what that first meditation was like? Um, not really, but what I remember, and this is why I wrote this book and I am passionate about sharing meditation with kids, is it the before and after of meditation for our family was very dramatic. So before, my dad was like stressed out, angry, didn't really know anything about me and my brother. Like he was working all the time. Um, Post-meditation, he was happier. He was more peaceful. He was around. Suddenly he'd be interested in what grade we were in and what we were studying. Um, and so our family life really transformed as kids um, because our parents were happier. But so that that speaks to the impact of the practice primarily on your parents and how that sort of trickled down to you. Did it? Do you remember it having an impact in your own mind beyond the relationship with your parents? So I absolutely, because what meditation we learned so young, but what meditation did for us, um, both my brother and I, is it gave us a tool to know ourselves better. So in a world, and especially even today, it's even a world of more stimulation. But, you know, as preteens and then teens and college days, um, you know, you're conflicted, you're confused, you're finding your identity. And meditation just gave this way to find an inner silence where we were grounded um, in an inner knowingness that was different from all like the conflicted messages. Um, that being said, my parents didn't force my brother and I to meditate at all. Um, it was something they taught us and we sometimes used, sometimes didn't use. I've gone through um, a 35-year-plus meditator now. Um, so I've gone through years where I meditate regularly. Other times I didn't. But as a kid, I think it was the greatest gift my parents gave us. So talk to me about that. What, what, talk to me about your career as a meditator. Has, has it always been transcendental meditation? And uh, when, were, when were the on times? When were the off times? Yeah, so I learned when I was nine, learned TM. I would say in my teenage years, um, I was very on and off, but I used it when I wanted to, and my parents never forced us to. But we saw that my parents meditated regularly, and so it was kind of just the thing our family did. Um, uh, I would say Gotham and I maybe rebelled by not meditating for years. He's the little brother. Yeah, he's Gotham, the little yes. brother. Um, and so we rebelled for a while. When I went to college, I actually was a very regular meditator. There was a TM center. I went to Brown in Providence, so there was a TM center there, and it was a nice place for me to escape. Um, and because of my the work that my father did, I was older, so I was in college when my dad started to write his first books. We also just met interesting people and traveled around, and we saw the benefits of people who were coming to my dad for help. So that was very dramatic. Um, and then I would say um, my work career was originally in with MTV and in media and very non-Chopra-esque type of 
things. What were you doing? Um, I actually was one of the first people for MTV when they launched in Asia. So I was the first person in India. I met my husband at a rave in New Delhi. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, I kind of did my thing. Both my brother and I, um, we really do not live what people would perceive us to live like this new age type of life. We don't live that at all, actually. Um, and so for me, then I think my meditation practice kind of was more intermittent. And then I had my kids and then life got really stressful. So I felt like I didn't really have time between all the kids stuff and work stuff. How, how old are they now? Um, so they're 16 and 14 now. So I would say when I was when they were about eight and 10 uh, is when I was really stressed out. Um, and so that was the time that I really rediscovered a regular meditation in my practice, which was transformational. And the last book I wrote was called Living with Intent, My Somewhat Messy Journey to Purpose, Peace and Joy, which was rediscovering these gifts that I had learned as a kid. And and that when you came back to it, it was again transcendental meditation. So when I came back to it, at that point, the Chopra Center has a similar mantra-based primordial sound meditation. But my dad really transitioned from the TM world, um, and not so, uncontroversially, not uncontroversially. And so TM is an amazing practice. But I think our family, just generally and me in particular, really believe that you should explore different things, use what works for you. Um, and so in this book, Just Breathe, it's really many different meditations, mindfulness exercises, using breath, words like I am, um, more mindfulness exercises. So I'm not attached at all to any particular type of meditation. I, I want to do two things. Uh, one is to just... Define for people the kinds of what TM is, what the you also talked about sort of non TM mantra based meditation, sure. what mindfulness is. I think we should define all of that, but I also want to know when you went back to it when your kids were eight and 10, I think you said, um, and you were really stressed out, what impact it had on you. I don't know which one we should do first. So, um, let me first tell you the impact. So, I, um, like many women um, and men, was balancing a busy career life of um, – I actually had a small company and consulting and then my kid life and just running around. And I realized one day as I was speaking to an audience about the power of meditation and mindfulness – that while I was speaking to them in the back of my head, I was having a parallel conversation, which was I have to go to the grocery store, pick up the dry cleaning, get the dog food, turn in the permission slip for my kid's field trip, um, write in a note to my investors. And I realized in talking about being mindful and present, I was completely distracted and a hypocrite. Um, and so that really began this process. Of I've had many such moments. Just yes, for the and they continue. Yes. Um, and so that, though, was really transformational that I realized I was exhausted, tired, unhappy, and really running around all day long. But at the end of the day, felt like I hadn't really accomplished anything. So my last book was really a kind of rediscovery of these techniques and, you know, which was really appropriate and great at that time in my life. And when I rediscovered them, I realized that I was so busy saying I never had enough time to do anything. Um, I didn't have time to meditate because I was running around all the time. But when I even just found that five to 10 minutes a day, it really grounded me for the day. And it really had a, a transformational effect because one, I was getting more rest. 
I just could be quiet to process kind of everything that's going on and kind of find the, that priority. And then three, actually really slip into kind of a space where I could let go of things. And that um, really brought this sense of grounding and peace back into my life. And so I speak a lot to women who are balancing many things and men, but, you know, finding that 10 minutes once a day can actually transform your life. And if you don't do it regularly, you don't do it regularly. I don't believe in guilt um, either. You know, we shouldn't get stressed because we're not meditating. So uh, finding a regular practice. So that was transformational for me. Um, And then we can get into the definitions. So meditation for the way I define it, meditation is a way to quiet your mind. Um, And we can do that through breath and using sound. So um, mantra-based meditations, mantra basically um, represents a tool for the mind. So man is the root for mind and tra is the root for instrument, trident, things like that. So a mantra is just a tool for the mind. Mm. So meditation usually uses sound um, or breath or a mantra to settle our mind. Mindfulness is awareness. And a mantra usually is a, a word you or a set of words. It can be some secret Sanskrit word handed down to you for a couple hundred dollars via the TM folks, or it can be uh, just your dad will use the words I am. Exactly. Uh, that you repeat to yourself silently in your head, uh, sometimes tied to your breath, sometimes not, as I understand it. You can correct me yes. where, where I run afoul of, of the facts here. And you you focus on this word, and every time you get distracted, you sort of gently begin again. And then mindfulness is more based on just starting with the breath itself. Yes. So a mantra in the TM tradition, uh, they call it primordial sound mantras. So they represent healing vibrational energy, which is why they have different sounds. Um, But yes, I'm a big advocate, especially with kids and people starting meditation, of just using a word like I am. Um, And I am vibrationally, the reason we use it is it's a healing sound. So think of the word amen or amma or aham or Abraham. They all have this infinite to the finite, aham, amen, amma. So I am is a similar vibrational sound that's healing. I just, as a skeptic, when I hear people talk about vibrational sounds that are healing, I'm, that fires off all of my synapses. How how do you respond to that? So absolutely, I would encourage you to be a skeptic. I would <laughs> encourage, and actually, I, no, seriously, I would encourage everyone to be a skeptic and to use what works best for you. Um, and that's why I'm a big believer in try all of the different techniques, because for some people, it doesn't work and it's hogwash and your mind's going to go to places where it's not going to work. Um, but if you find that it helps you and, you know, you find I am is a sound that is soothing and healing, go for it. You may have other words. Um, you know, when I teach, a lot of people have words in their particular religions which help them or other people who um, just prefer to use the breath. So I would suggest use what works for you. I mean, I, I, having said that, I mean, I react a little bit to the claim of a healing vibration or whatever. Having said that, I have a tiny bit of experience of meditating with a mantra and setting aside the claims, I did find it really interesting. Mm -hmm. For example, I think the first time I ever meditated with a mantra, one of the first times I ever meditated full stop was with your dad when I was shooting a story on him for a weekend edition of World News Tonight. Uh, uh, We were doing a series of stories about people who are influential in in the happiness business and – 
he sat me down and did a 20-minute meditation using the words I am mm -hmm. internally. Mm -hmm. I would repeat them to myself. I think I would say it on the in-breath and the out-breath, but I can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah. But definitely just saying those words. And I remember opening my eyes 20 minutes later and feeling like, oh, that was 20 minutes? Yeah. It felt like two minutes. Yeah, yeah. So I would encourage people to use – try different things. That's my main thing is try what works. So – for meditation, some people enjoy going and having like an intellectual kind of deep dive into the TM world or other worlds. For me, when I teach, I usually use the words I am or maybe aham, you know, which doesn't come with I am often comes with associations of things. So aham usually doesn't come with associations. Uh, so that's meditation. Mindfulness is awareness, so being aware of your thoughts, your body, and the surrounding environment. So with that, um, again, can be uh, being aware of your breath, being doing body awareness exercises. In this book and otherwise, one of the things that my dad used to really teach my brother a lot was um, about thinking about your internal dialogue and so how you speak to yourself and speak to the world. Uh, being aware of things like how you walk, how you speak, how you eat, how you interact with others, so mindful listening. Um, there are endless mindfulness exercises. And then uh, in this book, I talk about um, movement, so basic yoga, because especially for kids where sometimes it's hard to sit down and be still, uh, we don't need to be still all the time. Yoga is a great way to become more aware of your body and to move and let out energy uh, and it can be great for kids. And then uh, last um, is really motivation, so things like Gratitude exercises, um, setting intentions, uh, and really kind of creating that dialogue that's um, positive uh, for kids and adults. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected. After investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. So this book, is, for, which I hold in my hands, is for kids who are did you say 8 to 14? So 8 to 12 years eight old. To 12. So I wrote this book for middle school kids because 
what I found, um, one, it was a great gift for me, meditation. So I wanted to share that. And as I've gone through my own parenting journey, I found that, you know, when my kids were five, six years old, they learned how to meditate. And then, um, you know, their friends and through my other fellow families, I started to teach other kids, teach other parents. And what you realize, I know you have a young one, um, but what you realize as kids get older is that they also, the stresses start adding up pretty quickly. And I think lots of people read parenting books and meditation books, but this book is really for kids. Like I want to empower kids to discover meditation for themselves so this book is written um, similar to you may be familiar or maybe not. Um, the American girls have these books on the body, like which which kids themselves can read and learn about, you know, their physical changes. Uh, so this isn't just a, something for parents to read. No, this and is teach your kids. No, this, is, this a, is for kids. Oh, great! It's written for eight to twelve year olds, and the goal is to empower kids directly. Um, and my hope is that kids will be teaching their parents about this stuff rather than vice versa. Is there any evidence? Um, that it works? I think there's research that is starting to come out, which I, I'm i not confident in standing by the research completely yet. Um, so, you know, I just did a program, I actually just completed a master's at Columbia um, at the Spirit Mind Body Institute in the clinical psychology department. And they're driving a lot of the new research because I think a lot of the research has been driven now historically by groups that want promote and market their own stuff. So some of the research is supposedly saying um, that it helps with test taking or with anxiety or depression. Um, but I think it's, again, the the method of research is so specific that it's hard to kind of feel the overall feeling. So in my experience, and that's why I've written this book for kids, is let kids try different things. So there's a lot of research on gratitude, for example, um, but let kids kind of discover and try different things and see what works for them. So do you, uh, do you have any evidence that kids – I mean what are you seeing anecdotally from kids who you know who have picked up this book? Is it – are they actually doing the thing or are they rejecting it as – like I, I feel like a little me – would have said, no way, I don't want to do this. So the little you and the little me, who's probably a little bit older, um, is uh, we grew up in a time when people were really skeptical. So my dad was the Asian witch doctor who was selling snake oil, right, when he started out. The kids today, and you will see this as your kid starts to go to school, meditation and mindfulness is part of these curriculums already. So kids are already doing time in instead of time out. Mm. Kids are already, um, you know, walk to lunch quietly and, you know, let's not talk. Um, kids are already being taught to be grateful. So actually, this is already happening um, in many school curriculums. It's not called meditation and mindfulness, but teachers um, and just academically, more and more programs are really incorporating yoga and movement. Um, so actually what I'm finding is the kids, this is like so normal. It's not something that's kind of out there for them like it may have been for you. Um, and I'm sure you will end up seeing this when your kid starts to go to preschool. Like these programs are already incorporated in there. So for someone like me who's sharing this, um, and that's why I wrote the book in a very um, – in a way that didn't bring any religion or kind of too much spiritual dogma with it, but really just simple techniques. So 
go for a mindful walk. Take 10 steps and just notice how you feel. Eat a meal quietly with your family and see how that feels different. Think about something you're grateful for before you can go to bed at night. So we're not calling it, you know, these kind of big techniques. They're just simple exercises. Uh, what about your kids? Have you taught them and have, has it stuck or do they reject it because they're rebellious? So my kids um, learned when they were five or six, obviously with my father, Deepak Chopra, as their grandfather. Um, he taught them when they were like five or six. And um, my kids are now 16 and 14. And my nephew, my brother's son, is 10. So my 10-year-old nephew actually is the most um, regular in his meditation practice. So he loves to sit like the summer he was here with my parents. He sat and meditated with my mother every single day. Um, and it was just like a sweet, he's sweet still, right? So my kids are 14 and 16. Um, so for them, there's a lot of eye rolling and like, you know, everyone in the family talks about this stuff, but they have the technique. My older one, who's 16, going in 11th grade and has a pretty stressful, just academic uh, and extracurricular life, I found that she does it on the bus sometimes when she's coming home from school. She doesn't need to talk about it. I don't even ask her. Um, I, I strongly, strongly believe as parents, we shouldn't force our kids to meditate. It's more give them the tools and then they'll figure out what works best for them. My 14-year-old is kind of in between the... 10 and 16 year olds. So what advice would you have? Because I suspect I get asked this all the time from parents, you know, how do I get my kid to access the benefits of meditation? What advice do you have? So I'm I have pretty strong advice because of my own background. Um, so my parents never, ever forced my brother and I to meditate. And I think if they had forced us to meditate, we would have totally rebelled against it. Instead, they had a meditation practice and a regular meditation practice, and we were able, as we grew up, to see how that helped them and helped our family. So it was something that we kind of wanted to do because it made our family happier. So um, with this book, I know, for example, that parents are probably going to buy the book to give to their kids, mm -hmm. and what I hope they don't do is say, oh, no, you have to do this. Like, I hope that they give this book to their kids. Maybe they open up a page. It depends on a family dynamic. Like, maybe it's something the family does together, or maybe it's just something that sits on the kid's bedside table. And one day when they're feeling stressed and anxious, you know, maybe before a test is coming, maybe they peek into the book and find something that works for them. So I do feel pretty strongly like you can't force your kids to do this stuff. You know, I've, I've talked about this before on the show that my attitude, my son's only three, but, and I don't know if I'm just justifying my laziness because I don't know how to teach a three-year-old to meditate, but, so I don't talk to him about it at all, but he knows that daddy meditates yes. and that mommy episodically meditates, but definitely knows that daddy does. And my goal is just to, just like with my parents growing up, I knew that they exercised exactly. a lot and they didn't force me to exercise, but it was just like, oh, that's what grownups ups happy, successful grownups do. Yeah. So I'm hoping that that's one route. But I also want to give him the tool. And at some point, I don't know how I, I would like to teach him how to do it or have somebody teach him how to do it so he can reject it. But at least like you, he's got it baked into his neurons on some level. Yeah. And I think that's one. I do believe that um, naturally in schools, it's becoming more acceptable. Um, just breathing exercises. It's not called meditation, but breathing taking a pause, et cetera. So I think... Oh, I, have a, I have a... Sorry. I have, yeah. a, I have a friend, uh, my wife's best friend, 
as a Cuban American lives in Miami and her daughter goes to a school where they call it espacio. Exactly. Spanish space. for space. Yeah, yes. exactly. So I I think this isn't foreign stuff anymore. Like even I think when you discovered it, it was still like, oh, something new. Um, but this is so mainstream now. So um, the reason I wanted to do this book is what I realized is when all of my friends, my kids' friends' parents were reaching out to me and saying, can you teach my kids how to meditate? One, I realized, like, as the mom of their friend, like, I'm not a cool enough person to teach them meditation. Um, and so, you know, they were either learning it in school, but I realized that if I could create something that they can just discover it on their own, you know, maybe that will help. What's it like for you to kind of go into the family business? So I, my brother and I both, um, you know, my brother got them. We have historically oh, actually— By the way, we should say a documentary film producer. Yeah, and doing really well, yes. and we're really proud of him. My brother and I both historically have not wanted to be involved um, in the family business, whatever that is. Um, and so, one, my dad—we're not involved in the Chopra Center at all. We don't really work with my dad. Tell us what the Chopra Center is. The Chopra Center is uh, basically at La Costa in San Diego, a place that people can go and— learn meditation, um, get treatment for whatever ailments or just kind of take a detox week um, and get education. So, um, But we've never been involved in that. My background historically was more in media and I did my MBA at Kellogg and was in business. My husband's a venture capitalist, totally skeptical about meditation. Does he so he doesn't meditate? No, not really. And he, <laughs> like when I met him for the first time, he's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard a doctor <laughs> giving up medicine to write books. Um, and this was 25 years ago, so before my dad became really well known. Um, and uh, my sister-in-law is an ophthalmologist, so we don't really live in that world. What happened for me is when I was pregnant with my first daughter, um, I was five months pregnant on 9-11, and mm. um, we thought my brother was on one of the planes, and uh, it was a very stressful time. And I realized um, after a series of events, I was in the hospital just getting my baby monitored because I had fainted from stress thinking about where my brother was. And I realized when I was about 30 years old that, you know, this stuff that my dad's been talking about, not meditation as much, but really who am I, what do I want, and how can I serve – had real impact on me. So for me, in becoming a mother, it became more important for me, for my family, to really think about this stuff. So for me, my kids are now, she's almost 17. So in the last 15, 16, 17 years, I've done a variety of things. This is my fourth book, but they've really been more um, a reflection of what I'm going through as a mom, um, and parenting and that life. Um, and so I've been able to share them. So I don't think it's, we don't think of it as family business. Um, you know, I have a unique voice from my dad because I'm a mom with two kids. Like I, my dad could never talk about being a mom with two kids, a daughter. <laughs> so. did, what did you, what did you, uh, your brother did a documentary about your dad? Like, mm -hmm. what was it like seven or eight years yeah. ago? Yeah. It was pretty tough. What did you think of that? So my... What was that documentary called? So it's called Decoding Deepak. Yeah, yeah. And my brother traditionally did more war journalism um, and then kind of figured out different things. And then Decoding Deepak came up. And yeah, he was... My, my brother was skeptical. You know, as kids, 
we are very aware of the mythology of my father versus the reality of my father. And that is something my dad encourages, actually. It's not like something he's trying to hide. So he very much knows that people have this perception of him. So when my dad, my dad agreed to let my brother do that documentary, I mean, he could have not let it happen. But my dad was okay with demystifying, you know, this idea of what a guru is. Um, and so, yeah, we're in our family. I think even as kids, one of the things my dad was always like, don't take life so seriously. Like that really ultimately was the lesson he taught us. Um, and so, yeah, we're like, we're pretty like kind of laugh at each other all the time. To be honest, I've never read any of my dad's books. I don't think Gotham has either. Um, but we've typed a lot of them, like, you know, and we hear about it all the time. Typed so, a lot of them? Yeah. So when we were kids, um, we used to have to type his books, like pre even computers and word docs and things like that. So I think this all kind of became imbibed in us as kids. He used to just dictate things to us and we'd write them all the time. I interviewed your dad and your brother when the movie came out yeah. for a story for Nightline, I think. Yeah. And your brother follows your dad around with a camera and shows that he's like, or at least at the time, was just constantly checking his, I guess, then Blackberry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, just walking down the street, just just checking his BlackBerry, which yeah. was my experience. I had spent a little time with your dad before that, yeah. which I wrote about, um, and that he was just on his yeah. phone all the time. Yeah. He you know, just shows him, you know, he definitely warts and all, hair down yeah. for better or for worse. And I got the sense, I got the vibe from your dad that he was cool with it, but also a little bit like uh, this was pretty – I don't know that he knew it was going to be that harsh. So I think he um – I think my dad's a great sport. So yes. the great thing about our family, so my dad's there in the forefront, but my mother is um, a really strong anchoring force, and she's really the glue of our family. Um, and so, you know, my dad's always been out there doing crazy things, but my mom's really the anchor. But my dad truly, Gotham and I are so lucky because whenever we ask him for help, because we haven't really helped him that much in his business or doing things like that. But whenever we ask him for help, he's always, always says yes. Um, and so I think with Gotham and Decoding Deepak, he he went along with it. And yeah, of course, it was probably uncomfortable to watch, you know, him certain scenes in that movie. But my dad promoted it. He went out with Gotham to do it. Um, and actually, that also provided platform for everything Gotham's doing now because he did the Kobe film um, right after that. The Kobe Bryant film. Yeah, and Kobe now he's Bryant working with Mike, exactly. or Michael Strahan yeah, and with um, uh, uh, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Yeah, he's I doing guess. amazing yeah. stuff. So we are lucky. So I always say that, um, you know, I know uh, people have lots of perceptions, a lot of perceptions about our family, which is fine. They can have their perceptions. They have a lot of perceptions about my father. We grew up with the skeptics attacking my father all the time. Um, so, you know, that's my memories is my dad was always the crazy guy. And so it's very like for us, the fact that he's so mainstream now is funny because he was never that way. He was never even seek like he was fine being the rebel. Like he didn't really um, didn't bother him. And so I think what we learned from my father is do what you feel passionate about and what you believe in. And, um, you know, we've, we're very fortunate that because of his success, we've got to do some great things, too. It's weird. We, he and your father and I travel in the same circles in many ways that. I have literally not seen him since my book came out, oh, and which I make fun of him yeah. quite uh, um, yeah. enthusiastically. Um, 
he did tweet once said, but he said something pretty nice, which indicates to me that yes, he is a good sport. Um, oh, my dad. So this is also, I think, this perception that people have, and my brother and I have it, it. It's fascinating that we experience this a lot. There are a lot of people who think that because they criticized my dad in the past, that my dad has some feelings toward them. Like my dad couldn't care less. My dad truly. One, he'll work with anyone. Just generally, we always laugh about it. He'll do anything with anyone. He's a good sport, not just with us, but with anybody. And second, he doesn't really care. Like, there are so many people in his world who, like, attacked him like crazy. Um, and so, and I'm blanking on his name, but the head of the Skeptics Society. Yes, Mike, Michael Mike, Shermer. Michael yes. Shermer yes. is, like, with us all the time. He comes to all of the Chopra Center courses. His wife is, like, a huge meditator and fan of my dad's. Like, you would think that the history there, um, but actually he's a really good friend. He Like, I'm a good friend of his. And so we've even had things where people have applied to, like, this private school that we're at, and they'll tell people, oh, well, you know, they may have an issue with us because I once criticized him. And we don't even remember those things. Like, they're so irrelevant, actually. So. Well, it's funny because I – so I have I was there for a lot of the history between Michael Shermer, who's the – I think the head of the Skeptic yes. Society or something, whatever. I yeah, don't yeah. – I can't remember. But so I moderated a debate, which has an enormous number of YouTube views. Uh, it was between Michael Shermer and Sam Harris, yep. uh, who is the – Famous or in some circles infamous atheist. Yeah. Uh, so they were on one side, Shermer and Harris. Not, no relation to me, but we're, we did become friends after that event. And the other side was your dad. And why am I blanking on her name? Eminent philosopher was the woman who was with Hillary Clinton um, in the whole, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt's okay, I don't know. occupying yeah. ghost, yeah, yeah. occupying the West Bank. Yeah. Something anyway. Uh, I'm I'm gonna kick myself because she's very well regarded. Anyway, the 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 title for the debate we hosted it on Nightline was "Does God Have a Future?" Yep. I think was the name of yeah, the debate. I think anyway, so. we did it at Caltech. Yeah. Uh, so you know, um, place where all these eminent scientists are, and the audience was not with your dad, yeah. if I recall. Yeah, and there yeah. was, in fact, a very funny exchange with a physicist who got up and kind of skewered your dad a little bit. And your dad and that guy, wrote, Leonard, maybe, yeah, yeah, Leonard, Leonard, no. yeah, yeah. See, they wrote a book together. Yeah, and Leonard's a great friend of ours. Um, and so that's a great example, again, because Leonard, I, I think I was at that event and I remember, but like literally Leonard, we see him all the time. We see Michael Shermer all the time. So I think we have learned through my dad's example um, which is what I said, don't take everything so seriously. Like he really doesn't get offended. Like that doesn't stick with him. Um, and I think he's been so used to being attacked for so long. Um, it's kind of funny now that he's so considered, you know, so many people will kind of meet him and, th you know, think he has this mysticism about him. He doesn't take that yeah. seriously either. So, you know, I mean, I think I said this in my book and I can't remember because it's been a long time since I wrote the book. But, you know, I... Definitely have a beef with the self-help world. Mm -hmm. But I think your dad is on the way benign end of that yeah. and has been a lot of his early advocating for practices like meditation has been, despite the fact that he took a lot of uh, heat for it, has been vindicated. Mm -hmm. um, and so I never got the – this is now I'm just talking, speaking my own opinion. Yeah. I met a lot of people in the self-help world who I got a sense – a real stink of venality off of. Yes. And I never got that from your dad. Yeah. Um, 
I, I you know, he's, I, I th- he struck me as a bit of a hustler. You know, like not a, not in the in the sense he's trying to get your money, but like he's just hustling. He's do, he's you know talking to guys who bend spoons with their mind. He's working on video games. He's writing yeah. the third thirty seventh book. Yes, yeah. that whole he's always checking his email. Well, I but, think it's eighty six yes. books now. FYA, but um, eighty six. Yeah. Right. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. So that I get that vibe from him, but not like he's trying to peddle something to you that is going to be bad for you, but give him your money. So I. And I said this earlier, when we grew up, what drove us, and I, this book that I've written has breath, meditation, mindfulness, but the whole end of the book really is about how do we approach life. And that is where I think my dad really had an effect on me and my brother. So he would have us ask ourselves these questions, who am I, what do I want, how can I serve, and what am I grateful for? And that really set the stage, I think, for our whole life. Um, and so I think all of these techniques are amazing. They help with anxiety. They help with, you know, all of the research that is coming out. But ultimately, what we've learned from my father, I think, um, is do what you're passionate about. Be curious. Don't take things so seriously. See how you can help and serve people. So yes, I mean, I would agree. My dad, you know, is a hustler in the way that he is fascinated by what anyone does and he has an open mind to things um which also makes life fun like my dad has fun like he's a joyful happy guy like who's interacting with different people and open um not so judgmental actually which is also why he can deflect so much of the stuff that comes at him i buy that um well how do you answer those four questions so um I think who am I keeps changing. It, you know, I play different roles uh, from daughter to wife to mom to entrepreneur to author. But ultimately, who am I would have experienced in meditation is that peace inside. So that's why I think meditation is such a great gift for kids, because as your rules change, if you can still feel anchored in that peace inside, I call it your safe, happy place and take it with you in all situations. That's a really powerful empowering confidence that you can get in life. So for me, who am I is really that quiet place I feel when I meditate, in addition to all the labels. Um, What do I want? Um, It began with obviously very material things uh, in life. Um, Another phrase my dad used to have got them, and I say when we were growing up, uh, says, I am responsible for what I see. I choose the feelings I experience and set the goals I will achieve. And everything that seems to happen to me, I ask for and receive as I have asked. He'd ask us as kids, what do you want? We'd say tickets to the Celtics, a trip to Hawaii, new clothes, Atari games. Um, and he'd be like, okay, we'll work on that. But what about asking for love, connection, peace, a sense of purpose? So ultimately, what do I want? You know, I um, want health and happiness for my family um, and for my community. Uh, How can I serve? Again, has evolved. But in today's capacity, I think I can have a unique voice um, as a mom and a woman who comes from a family uh, that, you know, can share some of these techniques to the world. And my goal is, you know, if I can help other families uh, find some peace and happiness. That's something that, you know, I'll feel good about at the end of the day. Um, and then what am I grateful for? Honestly, I'm just so grateful for so many of the gifts I have, but most importantly, my family. I'm really lucky. I have amazing girls, a good relationship with my husband and come from this uh, kind of quirky family. But, um, you know, it's been fun. 
Awesome. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? No, this is good. Thank you for having me. Um, total pleasure. Yeah. Before I let you go, we always do this thing at the end of the show. We call it the plug zone. Yep. You just plug everything. Give us all your books. Give us websites, social media, a- everything. Sure. So I'm on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. under Malika Chopra. M-A-L-L-I-K-A-C-H-O-P-R-A dot com. Um, so that's social media. The I have several books, but the new book is called Just Breathe, Meditation, Mindfulness, Movement, and More. And like I said, it's targeted to 8 to 12-year-olds. I hope parents, grandparents, teachers, um, librarians, I'm getting great feedback from librarians and teachers, um, get this for their kids. Uh, and then my other most recent book was called Living with Intent, My Somewhat Messy Journey to Purpose, Peace, and Joy, which I would say um, really is more for people dealing with balance and purpose and just trying to get through the day. Awesome. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.